Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia. And sticking it to annoying teams of pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Ooh, Ooh, or maybe you can call me Gulia. <laughs> oh, that's good. My name doesn't that's lend good. itself to anything spooky. No, sorry. <laughs> we are recording this on Halloween night. Yes, the spookiest. The spookiest of nights. So I hope that you're still in the spirit a couple days later. Yes. The I spirit. The Did spirit. you get it? You oh, that was it? very good. Oh my yeah, gosh, that was good. So many good, <laughs> spooky <laughs> puns. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I I have so many friends who love fall the most and love mm-hmm. Halloween so much. Oh, so yeah. again, I figured I would keep this rolling and talk about a very spooky person for this Ooh. episode. Who? Tell me. Tonight is all about Shirley Jackson. <gasps> Yeah, this one right here goes out to all the babies, mamas, 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 mamas. I'm so excited for this. I didn't know much about her before I started doing research, and I love her. <clears throat> she's uh, she's amazing for sure. So. Shirley Hardy Jackson was born in December 1916 in San Francisco, California, and she grew up in nearby Burlingame. Um, so she would later claim to have been born in 1919 to appear younger than her husband, mm. but she was born in 1916. Um, so her parents, Leslie and Geraldine, were fairly well off, thanks to her grandparents, including one who was a famous architect who built mansions in California in the 19th century. Oh. But her parents were pretty like conservative and kind of like, you know, pearl clutchy and, you know, uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, so Shirley identified herself early on as an outsider, but also mm. as a writer. Um, her mother, Geraldine, made it clear that she was disappointed by her daughter and wished that she was prettier. Oh, my God. <laughs> and according to the author, Zoe Heller, who wrote an amazing article that I'll tell you more about at the end, um, Zoe Heller said, quote, she told Jackson that she was the product of a failed abortion and harangued her constantly about her bad hair, her weight, and her willful refusal to cultivate feminine charm. Long after what? Jackson had grown up and moved away, Geraldine continued to send letters criticizing her helter-skelter way of living, her repetitious fiction, and her appearance, saying, quote, I have been so sad all morning about what you have allowed yourself to look like. What? So this is Shirley Jackson's mother, everybody. Like, just wow. a real peach of a woman, right? <laughs> I am aghast. Aghast and agape. Yes. That's insanity. Yes. What a horrible woman. What a horrible woman. Exactly. A, a ghoulish woman, if you will. A cow, if you will. Ha ha. Ha ha. So, so they're in, like, they're in California, but around her senior year of high school, Shirley's father took a job at the Stecker Trung Litho Company in Rochester, New York. Are you shitting me right no. now? No. <laughs> she attended Brighton High School in Rochester. What? That's like right over the, that's right that's down right the street over, from me. That's right across, you could, you could throw a rock at it. Yes. Um, and from 1934 to 1936, Shirley attended the University of Rochester. Why, why are there not like... 90 foot high portraits of her all over the city. You know, well, the amount of the amount of people around here who are like, you know, they're from Rochester. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, they're from Rochester. Yes. Did you know that was invented in Rochester? Yes. I'm really surprised that Shirley was not like everywhere. Well, <laughs> she was asked to leave by the administration due oh, to her poor oh. academic performance. Oh, so okay. they're not like 
There's no statue of her on campus. Uh, okay. But she did her first known example of a published work was a three paragraph review of a violin recital in a 1935 campus publication. And the U of R University archivist um, found that in 2016, which is like officially oh, cool. Shirley Jackson's first published piece of work was at the University of Rochester. So that's pretty cool. That was pretty cool. So anyway, after, you know, after being asked to leave. <laughs> U of R. Um, she then enrolled at Syracuse University. Mm. And there she became the fiction editor of the Campus Humor magazine. She met a Jewish intellectual named Stanley Edgar Hyman, who, according to the author Zoe Heller, sought her out after reading her first published story, Janice, and, quote, decided that she was the girl he was going to marry. You know wow. how that always works out for everybody involved, right? <laughs> yeah, that that only happens in the 30s, apparently. Anyway. <laughs> so the two got married, um, despite actual opposition from both sets of parents, because like her parents were conservative and rich and awful Was- and waspy. his family was uh was jewish and maybe they weren't as wealthy as shirley's family was and so everybody nobody liked this yeah and you'll find out more why so they graduated from syracuse she graduated from syracuse actually in 1940 and they moved to new york they both began contributing to the new yorker um shirley is a fiction writer and you know stanley kind of all over the place and in 1945 after their first child was born they actually settled in vermont because stanley had been offered a post on the literature faculty at bennington college um one of stanley's shall we say, uh, drawbacks was that not only did he insist on continuing to sleep with other women while Mm. connected to Shirley, but he expected her to listen to his recaps of his sexual escapades. So just a real, again, she's just, mm, her orbit is just full of awful people. Like, I mean, again, it's, she didn't, she, like, she understood that he was, he decided he was going to go sleep with other women and she, you know, accepted that. But like for him to like then wa- tell her like, about force it, force her to listen to that's disgusting. That's awful. It's awful. I hate him. Now I'm starting. <laughs> I mean, seconded. I'm, I'm starting to realize why her fiction is the way it is. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with her fiction, don't worry. We will tell you all about it. Mm. So at Bennington, um, Shirley and Stanley entertained contemporary writers like Ralph Ellison and Bernard Malamud. Um, Shirley felt patronized in her role as simply a faculty member's wife. Um she felt oppressed by her husband. She was generally miserable. And she increasingly relied on alcohol, amphetamines, and tranquilizers to get her through the day. So oh. Shirley did the cooking, the cleaning, the childcare, the errands, like, you know, oh, yeah. all of the mo- mental and emotional labor, obviously. And the only thing that seemed to give her any relief was writing. Uh-huh. So, and I mean, like she, like she was a promising writer in college and then she was like working on the New Yorker and like worked for other, other magazines in New York city. And then when they moved to Vermont, it was like, she was nobody now. She was just, just, she was a faculty member's wife. Yeah. So in 1948, um, Shirley Jackson's first published novel, loosely based on her childhood growing up in an affluent California neighborhood, was published, and that is called The Road Through the Wall. Um, So like a brief summary of it. um, So there's something called Pepper Street. It's an upper middle class neighborhood in Cabrillo, California. Sorry, is that Cabrillo? I don't 
I mean, uh, I don't know anything about the West Coast, so yeah, somebody'll correct us. Cab- yeah. Cabrillo, California. Um so anyway, Pepper Street is separated from lower class neighboring streets by a wall of a sprawling wealthy estate. And the residents of Pepper Street consider themselves upstanding citizens. Um the news that the wall is going to be torn down soon to make way for new housing development, all of Pepper Street is concerned like what is going to do this to their picture perfect neighborhood so there are a few situations of very like not in my backyard mm-hmm. stuff happening um and then a young girl goes missing and is found dead and then an outcast teen commits suicide and then everybody blames the girl's death on him so they can just all pretend that everything is normal oh, again sure. it's like you know it's things are not what they seem mm. and not everything is actually picture perfect so yeah, that's her first novel, The Road Through the Wall. Um, but what everybody really uh, associates with her is her short story, which was published in The New Yorker on June 25th, 1948, The Lottery. Yes. So I read this. It, yep. I read this for this episode. And yes, I I have a lot of feelings, too, about it. Yeah. But, uh, so oh, wait, yeah. there'll be so, feelings. Yeah. So yeah, I will. I will summarize it for everybody. I assume that many people have some familiarity with it. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm sorry if I give away anything. Yeah, here spoiler with alert, everybody. Um, so the story describes a fictional small town that observes a long running annual rite known as the lottery in which a member of the community is selected by chance. So it's a small village of about 300 residents and the locals in this story are in an excited but very nervous mood on June 27th. Um, Children are gathering stones as the adult townsfolk assemble for their annual event, which in local tradition is a practice to ensure a good harvest. So the lottery preparations start the night before and coal merchant Mr. Summers and postmaster Mr. Graves are drawing up a list of all of the extended families in town They're preparing a set of paper slips. There's one per family and all are blank except one, which is later revealed to be marked with a black dot. So they take these slips, they fold them up, they put them in a black wooden box, which is stored in a safe at Mr. Summer's office until the lottery is scheduled to begin. So you're like, okay, this is, you know, this is a a town. It's coming together. There's, you know, ooh, something's going to happen. So the morning of the lottery, the townspeople gather shortly around 10 a.m. to to have everything done in time for lunch. Um, So first, the heads of the extended families draw one slip from the box, um, but they have to wait to unfold them before until everybody has drawn a slip. Um, So there's a man named Bill Hutchinson, and he gets up, and he actually ends up getting the marked slip, meaning that his family has been chosen. Um, His wife is in the crowd, Tessie. She protests that he was rushed through the drawing, but the other townspeople ignore her. And since the Hutchinson family consists of only one household, they you know, they, this is where we're at. So for Mm -hmm. the final drawing, one slip is placed in the box for each member of the household. So there's Bill, Tessie, and their three children, Bill Jr., Nancy, and little Davey. So each of the five draws a slip. And in that, Tessie gets the marked one. So here's the ending of that story. I'll just read it to you. Although the villagers had forgotten the ritual and lost the original black box, they still remembered to use stones. The pile of stones the boys had made earlier was ready. There were stones on the ground with blowing scraps of paper that had come out of the box. Um, Delacroix selected a stone so large she had to pick it up with both hands and turned to Mrs. Dunbar. Come on, she said. Hurry up. Mr. Dunbar had small stones in both hands and gasping for breath. I can't run at all. You'll have to go ahead and I'll catch up to you. The children had stones already and someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. 
Tessie Hutchinson was in the center of a cleared space by now, and she held her hands out desperately as the villagers moved in on her. It isn't fair, she said. A stone hit her on the side of the head. Old Min Warner was saying, come on, come on, everyone. Steve Adams was in the front of the crowd of villagers with Mrs. Graves beside him. It isn't fair. It isn't right. Mrs. Hutchinson screamed, and then they were upon her. That story, can I tell you, I read it in high school. Uh-huh. It was, I just came across it. It wasn't assigned to me or anything. It was like in some short story, like, connect, like collaboration mm-hmm. or something that I was reading. And that is to this day, the only thing that I've ever read that I finished and then started from the beginning immediately. <laughs> like it was so, it was just like such an incredible piece of short fiction that I could not like absorb it in one go it was amazing it's incredible it's incredible and one of the things that i think is really interesting about it is until i read the story i was i I i've always really been dismissive of short stories Mm -hmm. because i'm like well i mean don't you need a while to like get it ramped up and get things Mm -hmm. explained and this and that and then when i read this and it's like i don't know eight pages long or something and i was like holy crap yeah it's shorts I i feel like Short stories are a are an excellent venue for excellent writing mm-hmm. because you you have to do a quick you have sketch. To be, yes, you have to be a good writer. Yeah, very precise, and you don't have a lot of room, and you're trying to create an atmosphere, and you only have you know so much to do it in. And it's, I mean, that it's just the the lottery is incredible. It it's a classic for a reason. Yes, exactly. I definitely recommend reading it if you haven't. Um, so the New Yorker, who published it, they received a torrent of letters inquiring mm-hmm. about the story, um, stating in the year 2013 that it was the most mail the magazine had ever received in response to a work of fiction. Wow. Uh, many readers demanded an explanation of the situation in the story, and a month after the initial publication, Shirley Jackson responded in the San Francisco Chronicle, saying in July 22nd, 1948, quote, explaining just what I had hoped the story to say is very difficult. I suppose I hoped by setting a particularly brutal ancient rite in the present and in my own village to shock the story's readers with a graphic dramatization of the pointless violence and general inhumanity in their own lives. Mm. So um, in the 1992 episode, Dog of Death and the Simpsons features a scene Uh, referring to the lottery. I knew this was coming. Uh, so during the peak of the lottery fever in Springfield, news anchor Kent Brockman announces on television that people hoping to get tips on how to win the jackpot have borrowed every available copy of Shirley Jackson's book, The Lottery, at the local <laughs> library. One of them is Homer, who throws the book in the fireplace after Kent Brockman reveals that, of course, the book does not contain any hints on how to win the lottery. It is, rather, a chilling tale of conformity gone mad. <laughs> That's very I just true. really so like that because <laughs> I mean, and it's and it's funny too. Like classic Simpsons just has so many like actually useful tidbits of information in it. Yeah, yeah, you get can get a lot of like cultural input from the Simpsons. Yeah. in very short bites. Yeah, it's great. It was very funny. So. So that was that's probably the work that people best know her for. But she did write six novels during her lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one to be published was in 1958. It was called Hangs a Man. 
H-A-N-G-S-A-M-A-N. So it's a buildings roman centering on a lonely college freshman named Natalie Waite who descends into madness after enrolling in a liberal arts college. Um, the title of it comes from an old folk ballad. Um, so the gist of it is that Natalie's father is a domineering and egotistical writer who keeps a tight mm-hmm. rein on Natalie and her long-suffering mother. <laughs> and when Natalie finally does get away, however, college life doesn't really bring the happiness she expected. And little by little, Natalie is no longer certain of anything, including where reality ends and her dark imaginings begin. And there have been some analyses of this um, as to are the, was this related to her time at the University of Rochester? Oh, sure. So yeah. uh, it's it's an interesting comparison to think about. Um, her third published novel is called The Bird's Nest. It was published in 1954. It's about a young woman named Elizabeth Richmond who has multiple personalities. And when I read oh, the summary of, of this, I was like, holy crap. So <laughs> Elizabeth is 23 years old. She lives with her Aunt Morgan and she works as a secretary at a local museum. After various lapses in memory, extreme headaches, and vulgar outbursts, Elizabeth's aunt sends her to visit a psychiatrist, and he eventually diagnoses her with multiple personalities. Elizabeth, who's vacuous and apathetic, Beth, who is sweet and docile, Betsy, who is vicious, and Bess, who is arrogant and vulgar. Um, The New York Times called this a dryly unsettling novel. And yeah, Uh. when I read like the actual summary of it, I was like, oh boy, this is probably too much for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, probably. I mean, it is Shirley Jackson. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And continuing on the, yeah, it's Shirley Jackson. Her fourth novel is called The Sundial, and this was published in 1956. So this tells the story of the residents of the Garish Halloran house that has an enormous sundial in the middle of the mathematically perfect grounds of the estate. So there are plenty of unpleasant characters, including Oriana Halloran, who likely murdered her own son, Lionel, at the beginning of the story in order to take over the house. Um, Her granddaughter, Fancy, receives a vision of her dead father in the gardens and he warns her that the world will end soon and only those in the Halloran house will be spared. Um, Fancy also has a tiny doll house that's a small replica of the mansion and she spends a lot of time moving the dolls around emulating her grandmother's manipulations of all of the people in the estate. So the Hallorans start stocking up on supplies for the next world but they get increasingly ridiculous and the novel ends on the day that the world is supposed to end with a number of unanswered questions and unsettling speculations. Also, yeah, again, when I read the summary of this, I was like, probably not for me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, her prose is so like gothic Mm -hmm. and um, very modern and just so disturbing. And it's and sometimes it's hard to kind of put your finger on like this overarching sense of dread that pervades her. Yes. (laughs) Her writing. But it's yep. just, it's incredible. I mean, it's it's one hundred percent up my alley. Yeah. Um, but it is definitely like a sometimes food kind of thing. Yes. So sure. as you as you mentioned, so gothic fiction, sometimes yeah. called gothic horror in the twentieth century, it's a genre of literature and film that covers horror, death, and sometimes romance. Um, mm-hmm. The genre also influenced American writing, creating a southern gothic genre that combines some gothic sensibilities, like the grotesque with the setting and the style of the southern United States. So examples of those include William Faulkner, Eudora Welty, Tennessee Williams, Flannery O'Connor, Truben Capote. 
Harper Lee, Cormac McCarthy, mm-hmm. and common elements in American Gothic fiction include madness, evil characters, miraculous survivals, some supernatural powers, fear, and psychological overlay. So mm. be prepared to like get uncomfortable when you read yes. like a true gothic horror. Yes, absolutely. And one example of that is probably her f- most famous novel is from mm-hmm. 1959, The Haunting of Hill House. Yes. Mm-hmm. So according to Paula Garan, um, Shirley Jackson decided to write a ghost story after reading about a group of 19th century psychic researchers who studied a house and somberly reported their supposed scientific findings to the Society for Psychic Research. What Jackson discovered in their dry reports was not the story of a haunted house. It was the story of several earnest, I believe, misguided, certainly determined people with their differing motivations and background. So she was excited by the prospect of creating her own haunted house and characters to explore it and then jackson also launched into research she later claimed to have found a picture in a magazine of a california house that she believed was suitably haunted looking she asked her mother again from california to help find information about the dwelling and according to jackson her mother identified this house as one of the ones that her own great great grandfather had designed get out isn't that crazy that's really weird. So uh, so Jackson came up with this idea. She she came up with the exterior. So she sketched floor plans of the interior of the downstairs and the upstairs wow. of Hill House and also continued to render the exterior. So Hill House, it's a mansion in a location that's never specified, but is between many hills. Um, mm. The story concerns four main characters. Dr. John Montague, who's an investigator of the supernatural. Eleanor Vance, a shy young woman who resents having lived as a recluse, caring for her demanding disabled mother. Um, the bohemian artist Theodora and Luke Sanderson, who is a young heir to the Hill House and hosts the others. So Dr. Monagu hopes to find scientific evidence of the existence of the supernatural. So he rents Hill House for a summer, invites as his guests several people whom he has chosen because of their experiences with paranormal events. And mm-hmm. of these people, only Eleanor and Theodora accept. So they travel to the house. They live in isolation with Montagu and Luke and very scary things ensue. Mm-hmm. I won't go into more detail. But in 2018, <laughs> the New York Times pulled 13 writers to choose the scariest book of fiction they've ever read. And Carmen Maria Machado and Neil Gaiman both chose The Haunting of Hill House as the scariest book they've ever read. And if I know anything about those two, they know a thing or two about creepy stories. Yeah. 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 So this has been adapted for stage, screen, and of course, Netflix. I know that. Um, yes. Josh was watching The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, oh. too. Too scary for me. I'm out. But, <laughs> too scary. Um, too scary. But yeah, this is, again, It's it's been a very influential um, yes. horror story, for sure. And um, probably, again, her probably her most famous novel. And then her sixth novel. This one I started reading... Okay. Um, but then because we were moving and working and packing and painting and I have a toddler <laughs> and then we got hand, foot and mouth disease and then I lost my yes. voice and then I had to work all these events. I didn't yes. get to finish reading. That's understandable. But- no one. I don't think anybody's going to knock you for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to finish it this year because it's good. I believe you. Yeah, it is good. So I mean, it's been a long time since I've read it, but yeah, it's yes. great. So We Have Always Lived in the Castles from 1962. It's Jackson's final novel. So it's written in the voice of 
eight-year-old Mary Catherine Blackwood, who goes by Mary Cat, and she lives with her sister Constance and Uncle Julian on an estate in Vermont. Um, So six years before the events of the novel, their family experienced a tragedy that left the three survivors isolated from their small village. So six years ago, both the Blackwood parents, John and Ellen, an aunt, who was Julian's wife, Dorothy, and a younger brother, Thomas, were murdered. They were poisoned with arsenic, which was mixed into the family's sugar bowl and sprinkled onto blackberries at dinner. Um, So Julian, though he had been poisoned, he survived. Um, Constance did not put sugar on her berries, but she so she was arrested for and eventually acquitted of the crime. Mary Cat was not at dinner because she'd been sent to bed without dinner as a punishment. So the people of the village believed that Constance had got away with murder and thus began to ostracize the whole family. So the three remaining Blackwoods had grown accustomed to their isolation, leading a quiet happy existence. Mary Cat is the family's sole contact with the outside world. She walks into the village twice a week, carries home groceries and library books, and on these trips she is faced directly with the hostility of the villagers. So Mary Cat is protective of her sister. She is also a practitioner of sympathetic magic. Um, She feels that a dangerous change is approaching and her response is to reassure herself of the various magical safeguards she's placed around their home. Um, Their long lost cousin Charles appears and Mary Cat is immediately suspicious of his motives and knows that something terrible is going to happen. And I will leave it at that. Oh, so yeah, I got I started reading this one. And even though I have an inkling of what's going to happen toward the end, it um, like, yeah, it's just her writing is just so like, no, she's so incredible. It's very impactful. She her her word choices and like the way that she sets things up and the way that you're like, mm-hmm. wait, why did she use that word yeah. here is very it's I don't know. I can't wait. She's, I, I mean, can't wait to finish a, it. The most brilliant writer. Yeah, she's fantastic. Um, so anyway, yeah, she's this awesome, she's this incredible writer. And she eventually becomes the breadwinner of the marriage with yeah. her and Stanley. Like Stanley is like, he's a professor sleeping with everybody. And Shirley Jackson is out here writing these like horror stories yeah, that incredible. people cannot get enough of. Yeah. So, you know, even though she's now the breadwinner of the family by the, by the, what year is it? By the early 60s. Um Stanley continued to control the family's finances, doling Mm, out portions of her earnings to her as he saw fit. Cool. So although he always encouraged her writing in part because, you know, it was her writing that kept the family afloat, he came to resent how completely her career had eclipsed his. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm heartbroken for him. Terrific. Um, uh, Shirley also wrote two um, stories, two books that she called domestic memoirs. Um, The first was called Life Among the Savages in 1952, which was a disrespectful memoir of my children. So it's a collection (laughs) of short stories edited into novel form. Originally, they were published in women's magazines like Good Housekeeping and Women's Day. So the characters include the narrator, who's a nameless stay-at-home mother who maintains the role of detached, amused observer, Um, the children's father, or my husband, a stereotypical hands-off father with an obsession for his coin collection, and the children, um, who are athletic little boy Lori, imaginative girl Janny, the baby Sally, and then Barry, who is actually the youngest. And then she followed that up in five years later with Raising Demons, published in 1957, oh, which picks up where Life Among the Savages left off. And um, this was criticized as being less humorous than its predecessor, but also, quote, a very pleasant form of pandemonium. 
That's a great descriptor. So yeah, I think these are, you know, these are kind of humorous stories a little more, yeah. you know, still kind of for the 50s, like a very edgy take on parenting, yeah. I would say. Um, but yeah, she had, she had a sharp, a sharp tongue and a sharp wit about her mm-hmm. for sure. So Shirley. By the time The Haunting of Hill House was published in 1959, Shirley Jackson suffered numerous health problems. So Mm -hmm. she was a very heavy smoker, which resulted in chronic asthma, joint pain, exhaustion, and dizziness that led to fainting spells. And shortly after the publication of We Have Always Lived in the Castle in 1962, she suffered a nervous breakdown and Mm -hmm. a prolonged bout of acute agoraphobia that prevented her from going outside for almost half of a year. Um, She said, quote, I've written myself into the house. It took her uh, almost two years to fully recover, during which time she was unable to write. Um, And to ease her anxiety and agoraphobia, the doctor prescribed barbiturates. Oh, man, the 50s and 60s were just like a wild, lawless time, right? Like for especially for drugs. She's on (laughs) she's smoking. She's drinking alcohol all the time. She's on uh, uppers and downers and barbiturates and amphetamines and like all kinds of stuff. So yikes. Yeah, I'll just rip the bandaid off. On August 8th, 1965, Shirley Jackson died from heart failure at age 48. What? I didn't realize she died that young. Yes. Damn. Probably the combination of all of the... Of all of the drugs and all of the health problems. It's, it's just, just a lot of hard living. Yeah, God. man. So she was cremated according to her wishes. And in 1968, her husband, Stanley, released a posthumous volume of her work called Come Along With Me that contained her unfinished last novel as well as 14 previously uncollected short stories. Among mm. them was Louisa, Please Come Home, which I started to read that short story. And it is very good. It's about a, um, a girl who... She just decides to run away from home on her sister's wedding day. And like she planned the whole thing like, you know, I'll buy a ticket to this place. They, you know, if I go to this place, it should be fine. And I'll change mm-hmm. my clothes here. Like she it's wow. It's a very good short story. OK. Um, and also in that book were three lectures that she had given at college or like writers conferences in her last years. And Shirley Jackson's papers are available at the Library of Congress, which is really awesome. In the August 5th, 2013 issue, The New Yorker published Paranoia, which um, writers from The New Yorker said was discovered in in her papers at the library, which is pretty cool. So um, two of her children, Lawrence and Sarah, became editors for a collection of her unpublished works. Um, It was called Let Me Tell You, News Stories, Essays, and Other Writings. And that compilation released in August 2015 marked the 50th anniversary of her death. So in 2016, journalist Ruth Franklin published Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life, a biography examining the influence of her upbringing, marriage, and addictions upon her work, while positioning her as a major figure in American literature and examiner of post-war American anxieties via domestic horror. Um, This biography went on to receive the National Book Critics Circle Award for Biography, the Edgar Award for Critical Biographical Work, and the Bram Stoker Award for Best Nonfiction. Nice. Um, So Shirley Jackson's life is also depicted in the 2020 film Shirley, starring Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Moss as Shirley Jackson and Michael Stuhlbarg as Stanley Edgar Hyman. Um, But people have kind of like scholars of Jackson have kind of like criticized that as it's not really like a good biography of her. She just happens to be a uh, the basis for a character there. Yeah, I heard it's like highly fictionalized, like 
Shirley Jackson-esque. Like, it's Shirley Jackson in a Shirley Jackson story kind of yeah. feeling as opposed to a biograph, bi- yes. like a biopic. I will say that the photos that I saw of Elizabeth Moth as her, like, it was exactly, she like, exactly her. like her. It was Wild. kind of crazy. Yes. So, oh, since 2015, Jackson's adopted home of North Bennington, Vermont, has honored her legacy by celebrating Shirley Jackson Day on June 27th. The day oh. in the fictional story, oh, The Lottery. <laughs> okay, that's very good. Yeah. You know what? They say Vermonters are <laughs> uptight, but that's a very good joke. I'll give them that. Yes. So I just want to plug, I got a, I got a lot of great information by a very excellent article by Zoe Heller called The Haunted Mind of Shirley Jackson from the October 17th, 2016 issue of The New Yorker. Um, and then Ruth Franklin's biography of her sounds mm-hmm. incredible too. So I'd love to yeah, check that out now that I have this like newfound like newfound interest and mm-hmm. like you know appreciation I'm, I'm ready yeah exactly appreciation for Shirley Jackson so mm-hmm. that's that cool. was her love her it was incredible. so wild so for our quiz tonight we are gonna pivot <laughs> okay our quiz is called Shirley you can't be serious this is a quiz about the stars of the 1980 parody film Airplane and some <laughs> other famous Shirley's <laughs> okay great all right Question one. The trio of Zucker, Abrahams, and Zucker wrote and produced the film Airplane, and they later created the Naked Gun comedic crime series starring Leslie Nielsen as Detective Frank Drebin. How many Naked Gun films are there in that series? Question two. Shirley Temple, child actress, dancer, U.S. ambassador to Ghana and to Czechoslovakia, subject of a Spanish surrealist zany painting. What couldn't this talented gal do? Also referred to as the Barcelona Sphinx, the gouache, pastel, and collage painting titled Shirley Temple, the youngest, most sacred monster of the cinema in her time, was created by which artist in 1939? Question three. Robert Hayes, Ted Stryker, our hero of Airplane, was the first ever celebrity guest on the first episode of what HBO late night talk show set comedy starring Gary Shandling? Question four. Sweet Charity, a 1969 musical starring Shirley MacLaine in the title role as a taxi dancer, was directed and choreographed by which musical theater genius who loved doing jazz hands? His dance partner slash muse starred as Charity in the original Broadway musical, but was replaced by MacLaine for the film. Question five. Julie Hagerty, who was flight attendant Elaine, went on to act in a 1991 sitcom called Princesses about the lives of three female roommates in New York City, one of whom was a real princess, played by Twiggy. Though that show got canceled faster than you can say oy vey, the silver lining was that their third roommate, played by which very fine actress from Flushing, Queens, launched her hit sitcom as a result. Question six. Name the wholesome actress whose illustrious filmography includes the following. Oklahoma, 1955. Carousel, 1956. Elmer Gantry, for which she won an Oscar in 1960. The Music Man, 1962. And The Partridge Family, 1970 to 1974. Question seven. 
born Ferdinand Louis Alcindor Jr., which record-breaking athlete publicly changed his name in 1971 and later dipped his size 17 toes into the world of acting to co-pilot Roger Murdoch in Airplane. He has since become a best-selling author, cultural critic, and global ambassador. Question 8. Ever Upward. Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman elected to U.S. Congress. But what state did she represent for seven terms? Question 9. Perhaps you can help solve a mystery. Who was that ominous voiced dramatic actor who played Captain Rex Kramer in Airplane again? And finally, question 10. You might say she has the golden touch, or at least a gold finger. With the release of her 2020 album, I Owe It All To You, which Welsh Dame became the first female artist to chart a top 40 album on the UK Albums Chart in seven consecutive decades. It's just a little bit of history repeating, after all. I'll give you about a minute to think and be back with your answers. No, I mean, I know a bunch, but yeah. like not all of them. Okay. All right. I'm, you know what? Positivity is the way to go. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do this. No negativity November, Lauren. No. <laughs> Ooh, you just coined something. So we did Outstanding October. Now yep. we're doing No Negativity November. Yeah. Everybody. And Eat then Depression pie. December. No. <laughs> we'll come up with something better for that by then. Yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll be you a know what? Work, don't worry. Eat your leftover Halloween candy. Yeah. Go to the store today. Buy some more. Yeah. Stash it's it. 50% it off. Cupboard. Yes. Enjoy. Eat it till Valentine's Day. Enjoy. Cuddle yeah. up in a cozy blanket. Light your it's candles. No negativity November. No negativity November, everybody. <laughs> Love it. All right. <laughs> Question one. The trio of Zucker, Abrahams, and Zucker wrote and produced the film Airplane, and they later created the Naked Gun comedic crime series starring Leslie Nielsen as Detective Frank Drebin. How many Naked Gun films are there in the series? Um, I am not a fan of slapstick films, so this will be a pure guess Mm -hmm. on my part. I'm going to say four. The answer is three. Ah, damn. Sorry. Um, 1988, you have The Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad. 
1991, you have The Naked Gun Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear. And in 1994, The Naked Gun 33 and Third, The Final Insult. Um, the films were based on the earlier short-lived television series Police Squad, in which Nielsen also starred. Um, and then an airplane, of course, Leslie Nielsen famously played Dr. Rumack and said the famous line that's like, it's I don't know, whatever. It's in like the top yeah. 10 lines of any movie ever said. And yes, exactly. it's still pretty good. <laughs> and I, I just love like I've seen Airplane before and I thought it was I thought it was very funny. Um, but you just keep hearing it over and over as like one of those films that like comedy people today like they oh, yeah. just love it. Like it's like Airplane, Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. Um Oh gosh, um, any like anything Mel Brooks, they love talking about that too. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, but Airplane is definitely one of the, like, if you the, haven't seen it, you should just see it just to know absolutely. what we're it all has talking literally about. Literally every kind of comedy you could possibly think of. Like, mm-hmm. there's puns and slapstick and dumb stuff and visual, you know, kind of jokes and yeah, like dry humor and just it's, like absurdism. Yeah, everybody would love it. Yeah, it's great. Anyway, yes, three Naked Gun films. All right. Question two, Shirley Temple, child actress, dancer, U.S. ambassador to Ghana and Czechoslovakia, subject of a Spanish surrealist zany painting. What couldn't this talented gal do? Also referred to as the Barcelona Sphinx, the gouache, pastel and collage painting titled Shirley Temple, the youngest, most sacred monster of the cinema in her time, was created by which artist in 1939? Is that Salvador Dali? It is Salvador Dali. <laughs> yeah. This painting is bizarre. It Ooh, depicts I look it up. the child star Shirley Temple as a sphinx. Her head, taken from a newspaper photograph, is superimposed on the body of a red lioness. On top of the head is a vampire bat. Surrounding the sphinx are a human skull and other bones, suggesting oh. in her latest kill. Um, and at the bottom of the painting is a trompe l'oeil label that reads, Shirley, at last, in tactical-color. Um, The painting has been described as a satire on the sexualization of child stars by Hollywood. But it's 1939. It seems pretty like early for something that, like, I don't know. Yeah, feels kind of gonzo um, to me, but yeah, it's um, it's definitely it's very Dolly because it's you know it, you know he's on like a beach or in a desert or whatever. Mm. It's like that's one hundred percent his setting, but yeah, it's not beautiful. No, <laughs> <laughs> I but wouldn't be it's like, also Ooh. it's also called the Barcelona Sphinx. Mm-hmm. So. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right, question three. Robert Hayes, who plays Ted Stryker, our hero of Airplane, was the first ever celebrity guest on the first episode of what HBO late night talk show set comedy starring Gary Shandling? Uh, For some reason, I'm thinking of The Critic, but that's not it. Is it? That's not uh, it. No, I didn't think so. Um, But it reminds me of The Critic. It's not the Larry Sanders show, is it? It is the Larry Sanders show. (laughs) Yeah. So that follows the production of a fictional late night talk show called The Larry Sanders Show, chronicling the daily life of host Larry, played by Gary Shandling, uh, producer Artie, played by Rip Torn, and sidekick mm-hmm. Hank Kingsley, played by Jeffrey Tambor, and their interactions with celebrity guests and the network. So though the show was a satire about show business, it featured real life celebrities on the talk show and behind the scenes. And it, like for the time, it was it was like pretty pioneering and again you you these to this day you hear people like commenting about how it was a big influence on yeah on comedy today so cool i thought it was interesting that like he was the first the first guest on the larry sanders show i don't know yeah all right question four 
Sweet Charity, a 1969 musical starring Shirley MacLaine in the title role as a taxi dancer, was directed and choreographed by which musical theater genius who loved doing jazz hands? His dance partner slash muse started Charity in the original Broadway musical, but was replaced by MacLaine for the film. That's Bob Fosse. It is Bob Fosse, and his partner was Gwen Verdon. Um, so Shirley MacLaine was named after actress Shirley Temple, who was six <gasps> at the time when Shirley MacLaine was born in 1934. Um, Sweet Charity is the musical from which we get the song Hey Big Spender. I think oh, that that's okay. probably like the most one of the most popular ones um, from that. There are some others, but that's the one I you know definitely knew off the top of my head. All right, question five. Julie Hagerty, whose flight attendant Elaine, went on to act in a 1991 sitcom called Princesses about the lives of three female roommates in New York City, one of whom was a real princess, played by Twiggy. Though that show got canceled faster than you can say oy vey, the silver lining was that their third roommate, played by which very fine actress from Flushing Queens, launched her hit sitcom as a result. Is that, um, oh God, what's her name? Fran Drescher? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Woo! Julie Hagerty, Twiggy, and Fran Drescher. That is a combo that I was not expecting. Yes. So I, I thought you. this was super in- interesting. So Fran Drescher developed the idea for the nanny while visiting co-star Twiggy and her family in England. And she modeled the character of Maxwell Sheffield on Twiggy's husband, Lee Lawson. And... The theme song featured in the pilot of the nanny was a version of If My Friends Could See Me Now, performed by Gwen Verdon from the 1966 Broadway musical Sweet Charity. What is happening right now? Everything is linked. Everything Everything is linked. linked. (laughs) That's so weird. And after the pilot, they changed the theme song to the nanny named Fran. But yeah, I thought that was that was cool. That's wild. Who knew? Question six. Name the wholesome actress whose illustrious filmography includes the following. Oklahoma, Carousel, Elmer Gantry, for which she won an Oscar, The Music Man, and The Partridge Family from 1970 to 1974. That is, shoot. I can see her face in my head. Her name is Why am I thinking Lawrence? That's not a last name. That's I mean, not her it, last it's name. a last name. Well, not I guess her last right. name. Yeah, yeah. It's not her last name. Shirley. Oh, I don't remember. What is it? Shirley Jones. Shirley Jones. Damn it. She's Shirley so Jones. With her also hair. named after the actress Shirley Temple, who was six Stop at it. the time when Shirley Julia. Jones was born in 1934. <laughs> what the fuck? What is happening? This is the spookiest night. The veil is thin tonight, Julia. You're you're causing all sorts of, of weirdness. So Shirley Jones was uh, Miss Pittsburgh, 1952. Okay, a hometown girl. Uh, she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for playing a vengeful sex worker in Elmer Gantry in 1960. In her film career, she worked with some of Hollywood's icons. Jimmy Stewart, Gene Kelly, Marlon Brando, James Cagney, Henry Fonda, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and of course, director John Ford. She turned down the role of Carol Brady on The Brady Bunch in 1970, but she liked the idea of music and comedy that she could combine in the Partridge family. So the show's song, I Think I Love You, which I think we all know. I think oh, I yeah. love you. So what am I, what so, am I so, so afraid, afraid of? of? I'm um, afraid that I'm not sure of. <laughs> 
I love there is no cure for. <laughs> I watched Shirley a lot Jones? of Nick at Night. <laughs> yes. So that song hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 music chart, making what? Shirley Jones the second person after Frank Sinatra and the first woman to win an acting Oscar and also have a number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100 music chart. Oh my God. Wow. And later that achievement was matched by Cher and Barbara Streisand. But I mean, of course, of course, but what a huge, that's a big huge deal. Thing. Huge that's thing. A big deal. All right. Question seven. Born Ferdinand Louis Alcindor Jr., which record-breaking athlete publicly changed his name in 1971 and later dipped his size 17 toes into the world of acting to co-pilot Roger Murdoch in Airplane. He has since become a best-selling author, cultural critic, and global ambassador. Uh, that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It sure is. He's known for his trademark skyhook, and he's the all-time <laughs> leading scorer of the NBA with 38,387 points. And he won the league MVP six times. He still holds or shares at least eight individual scoring records at UCLA more than four decades after playing there. And he holds many, like, many records still in the NBA, too. Oh, my God. Um. Okay, and he's also written or co-written more than a dozen books, including a trilogy of mystery novels about Mycroft Homes with Anna Waterhouse. (laughs) No, here's the thing. I have definitely heard that that man is like, if not a full genius, then like a borderline genius. Like he is a scholar and a writer, and he also played, he's like, He's just like a <laughs> renaissance man. He it's was incredible. He was in the writer's room for season four of Veronica Mars. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a bit that someone was doing, but no. Yes. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, seven and a half feet tall, is everywhere. <laughs> he's, he's, he's everywhere. <laughs> it, he's funny and he's smart and he's like, He's know, incredible. He's great. All right. Question eight. Ever upward, Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman elected to U.S. Congress. But what state did she represent for seven terms? I mean, you said ever upward. So I'm assuming that's the great state of New York State. You're taking a victory sip right now. You're right. Yes. New York. Shirley Chisholm was also named Shirley after... No, I'm just kidding. She was not. She was not named for Shirley Temple. Um, but she was the representative of New York's 12th Congressional District, Bedford-Stuyvesant, for seven terms from 1969 to 1983. Her 1968 campaign slogan was unbought and unbossed. Oh, I love that. I love that. So Chisholm only hired women for her office, and half of them were black. Um, Chisholm said that she had faced much more discrimination during her New York legislative career because she was a woman than because of her race. Wow. Uh-huh. That's that's just shitty all around. It's honestly. awful. It's awful. Like, which, hmm. Why? Yeah, I know. What would which, you rather? Yeah. Um, <laughs> in the 1972 U.S. presidential election, she became the first black candidate to run for a major party's nomination for president of the United States. She was the first woman to run for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. Uh, she died in 2005 and is buried in the Birchwood Mausoleum at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Buffalo, where the legend inscribed in her vault reads, unbought and unbossed. Incredible. Incredible. Everyone. She's an amazing woman. She's great. All right. Question nine. Perhaps you can help solve a mystery. Who was that ominous voice dramatic actor who played Captain Rex Kramer in Airplane? Um, It's been a long time since I've seen Airplane. And... I thought that was the inflatable pilot was the name of Rex. What's his name? So I don't know who this is, 
but I'm going to make a guess of Vincent Price, and I know I'm wrong. It's Robert Stack. Robert Stack. So Damn. our generation probably best knows him and his voice as the host of Unsolved Mysteries yes, from 1987 to 2002. But he had a very storied career before that. He was a national skeet shooting champion. He was oh. an aerial gunnery officer for the U.S. Navy during World War II. He was in the first feature-length 3D movie in 1952 that was called Buana Devil. He won an Emmy for playing Elliot Ness in the television series The Untouchables from 1953 to 1963. And pff, he's the great uncle of comedian Taron Killam. <laughs> what? <laughs> he's also named after Shirley Temple. <laughs> That is a surprising fact about him. Yeah, weird. <laughs> All right, and finally, question 10. You might say she is the golden touch, or at least a gold finger. With the release of her 2020 album, I Owe It All to You, which Welsh Dame became the first female artist to chart a top 40 album on the UK albums chart in seven consecutive decades. It's just a little bit of history repeating, after all. Diamonds are forever. <laughs> It's Shirley Bassey. It's Shirley Bassey, She's baby. incredible. She is best known for her expressive voice and for recording the soundtrack theme songs of three James Bond films, Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, and Moonraker. <gasps> Moonraker! That must be how it sounds. <laughs> I don't know. It must be. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. I had, <laughs> when I worked at a little bookstore called Barnes and Schmobel, um, oh, sorry. Schmarns and Blobel. Yeah, um, I had a friend, Ryan, uh, shout out to Ryan. He doesn't listen to this podcast. Um, but when uh, Kanye West came out with Diamonds of Sierra Leone, there was the sample of Shirley Bassey, mm. Diamonds Are Forever. And that album we played when we would clean up and that All kind of the thing. time. And every yeah. time Shirley Bassey would come on, <laughs> Ryan and I would make a point of like trying to scare, like, sh- like jump scare <laughs> Shirley Bassey to each other. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Like we would jump out from behind a bookshelf and be like, diamonds. <laughs> That's great. So it was fun. Awesome fun. job, Lauren. Thank you. Woohoo. Woohoo. Better than I was expecting. Yes. Awesome. Oh, by the way, before we close, by the way, great job. I love oh, that. That, that mm-hmm. was so interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I do have to shout out Mark Weedo. Because, <laughs> because I was like, someone said something funny on our on our Facebook page, and I don't remember who it was. <laughs> and Mark was very kind, and he was like, "Hey, looks like I almost got a shout I out. almost got a shout out." <laughs> and then on our most recent episode, he posted. He said, "Lauren is an anti dentite. You probably think they should have their own schools." She does think they should have their own schools. <laughs> Mark, Mark is knocks it out of the park every single time. Thank you, Mark. I apologize for not remembering your name last time. <laughs> Um, but we are in the works of getting uh, our boy Neil on the show. It's very yeah. difficult. The I mean, contract he lives negotiations. in Chicago. But uh, hopefully we'll be having some some fun, some Neil fun things content. for you. In the, mm-hmm. Some fun Neil mm-hmm. content mm-hmm. in the future mm-hmm. for you guys. So that's a little <laughs> teaser. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, Julia. Thank, thank you, Lauren. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate everybody. it. Um, yeah, if you want to, like... Tell a friend or like rate review and listen. What's what did Subscribe. I say? Smash that rate button. review and subscribe. Yeah, smash, smash that, that like button. button. Yeah. Tell um, me down below. Tell us down below. Which we're, we're gesturing. Yeah, um, we're gesturing. We're pointing downward. 
Yeah, and um, from our Facebook page and from our website, um, you can find links to everywhere you can find us as well as our merch site. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot. On, we haven't. Yeah, we, we have pu- merch uh, <laughs> over on <laughs> Public. That's fun. Um, and then we also have a link to um, a PayPal tip jar in case you, in case we made you laugh and you want to send 50 cents our way. <laughs> yeah. If you want to put a monetary value on your laughter, feel free to do so. If not, that's okay. That's uh, also that link is, um, I think it's on our website, right? And it's also <laughs> on our, tw- I don't remember. And it's also uh, on our Twitter on bio. Our Twitter. We are at misinfopod on Twitter. Yeah. So thanks everybody. Otherwise, yes. Uh, yes. We hope you had a terrific outstanding October. And, and get ready for rolling no on negativity in. November. Rolling on Here into fall. Yep. All so right. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye.